Hello again, Memphis, and welcome to Storyboard 30. Storyboard 30 is the interview program taken right out of the pages of the monthly print journal Storyboard Memphis, where we bring Memphis personalities and shapers right here into the WYPL studios for 30 minutes of in-depth conversation to hear about their passions, their initiatives, or to talk a little bit about what makes Memphis Memphis. As always, you are hearing our friend Jeff Hewlett on acoustic guitar. Jeff is a regular contributor to Storyboard Memphis and plays regularly with his friend Leah Keys in their duo, Leah and Me. And I am Mark Fleischer, publisher of Storyboard Memphis and your host for the next half hour of Storyboard 30. Uh, I have to mention, I uh, finally got to hear Lana Deering's show, and uh, her show comes on right before mine. Uh, so if you're just catching this show on a Sunday evening, be sure to tune in next week to hear Lana Deering's show that airs just before mine at 5 p.m. It's a terrific show. I'm giving her a shout-out because she gave me a shout-out uh, last week um, and talked and actually read from Storyboard Memphis, so that was really nice. So I want to give Lana a shout-out. So my guest today, uh, T.M. Garrett. Uh, now, T.M., you are – let's see. I'm, I'm going right off of your your – your website and your Wikipedia page, uh, German-American author, producer, filmmaker, marketing expert, radio personality, human rights activist, and founder of Change. But you have, you have really quite a story, um, which we're going to get into today. Um, so you have been here in Memphis for uh, since 2012, right? That's right. And your story really, I think, is, is quite remarkable so first of all just to give everyone kind of some context i met you um now two weeks ago uh for the round table we did um called uh the road to we which we held at the pink palace and you're one of about 12 panelists and we all talked about various issues first of all the first first panel discussion was about redlining about um discriminatory lending discriminatory housing practices past uh, in the past and also currently, the second one, uh, the second session, we got into empathy, which really I was very taken with your comments uh, around that topic, around empathy, um, because your story, uh, you were basically a uh, former or what, you were a former neo-Nazi. Former neo-Nazi, former white supremacist. Former racist, yeah. Now reformed, what you would call it. Um, some say human rights activist. Some say civil rights activist. Yeah. I just f- try to do what what I think is right. Mm-hmm. What I think is right for humanity. What I think is right for us all here yeah. in Memphis, here in the U.S., actually across the world. Yeah. Let Let's start, if you if you don't mind, talking about some of the things you're currently doing. I think that's a huge interest because you you um you really are um quite active in a number of areas so talk about some of the things that you're up to right now oh my god where (laughs) where do i start i mean um right now with everything what's going on the past couple of weeks i'm very active uh i work with the simon wiesenthal center which is Mm -hmm. a jewish human rights organization based in los angeles and I travel a lot with them. I speak to colleges and campuses, high schools. I've just been to Boston um, and just to New York and um, speak against anti-Semitism, against discrimination, 
But a big part of my message is empathy and compassion. And whatever I talk about, the end result is always compassion. Because I, I tell people about my story, what happened. Uh, I grew up in a dysfunctional family, got caught up in, in racist groups uh, with the belief system, started to fit in. Um, because I didn't receive that empathy or compassion at the time. And it was actually the thing that got me out of the hate groups. It was the compassion of a Turkish Muslim I received at some point. Uh -huh. And um, this is just the important part that I teach everybody. We have such a divided political environment here with uh, uh, two sides that drift to the extremes. And I tell all sides, look, whatever you believe in, the other side always has a valid reason for what they believe in. Might not be valid to you, no matter which side you're on, mm -hmm. you know. But to them, those reasons are valid, and that's very real. And this is why we have to look behind those labels. We just label each other. It, it can be addictions. It could be political uh, belief systems, faiths, whatever. We have to rip those labels off and look at the human being behind it. Right. And just show what's going on behind that curtain. Yeah, yeah. Uh the the work you're you're doing currently, I wanna I wanna really explore that, uh, but I also want to go back to your roots in Germany, um, and talk a little bit about because you mentioned here uh, in your in your um, early life here, um, you were attracted to nationalist groups at the age of thirteen, and it mentions here and then radicalized uh, in the years after. What is that like? How does that how does that happen as someone from, you know, I, I grew up in a very, I would say liberal household. Um, we hardly went to church as a matter of fact. Um, but, um, um, how does that happen? And I know at, at, at the, at an early age, you lost, lost your father, right? That's right. And that obviously would have a lot to do with this, but That's tell correct. me, tell me how, how that happened in terms of being radicalized. Some of the some of what you went through in Germany. Well, as I said, I, I grew up in the dysfunctional family. My my parents divorced when I was just born. My father died when I was eight. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother had a drinking problem. So she tried to take care. She was drinking, but I never starved. She, she went to work. She provided. But the most important thing was uh, that I had good grades at school. So what I really wanted, that was just kind of overlooked. So I was craving for attention. For uh, the people look at me what I want as a person, not just as a student, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I didn't get that attention from anywhere. And it started with actually inappropriate jokes at the schoolyard, like racist jokes, uh, anti-Semitic jokes, and, and stuff like that. And I was labeled as the Nazi kid after that. Other kids went back to normal. I didn't have a normal to go back. My normal would have been the bullied kid yeah. that you could push around. I for nothing in the world I would have exchanged it again. So I, I just ran with it. And, you know, it's a little bit like the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell a kid long enough, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, no hard you try, no matter how hard you try, they just expect you to do the bad thing. That's, it was a little bit like that for me. And I just started to fit in. And at some point I received uh, a cassette tape with racist music. And music was important to me. It was pretty much the only thing I had. Mm -hmm. And I was hooked, and I just started to fit in because nobody looked behind that curtain. They only looked at that label, 
And there was no empathy. There was no compassion. Nobody really wanted to know what's going on in my life. And this is why I say nowadays in this environment, there's a lot of little TMs out there um, mm. that maybe just provoke first. We don't know how far radicalized they are. And this is why we have to talk to people. Mm -hmm. um, one good example, there was an incident at a school here in East Memphis. A kid wrote a racial slur. On, on the table, and and I was part of a Facebook discussion about that, and everybody was calling for to to get that kid expelled from school, mm -hmm. and I said this is the wrong way to do it. We need to talk to that kid. I don't know. Maybe the kid just picked the line up from somewhere, and and something triggered it, and we have to catch the kid before it gets radicalized. Yeah. But once people like that lose their job or get called out, get kicked from school, I mean they will see those people who are responsible that they get kicked out as their enemies that helps them radicalize and they will be in a corner and you know in that corner mm -hmm. they may be picked up by the guys with the white pointy hoods right. at some point yeah but we can save those kids or young adults or even sometimes older adults on that way yeah dealing with your own experiences growing up and then some of the other kids you you I'm sure you've seen um, how how huge is it that that many of these kids and yourself um, either lost a father at an early age or maybe did not have the best example of a father? How prevalent is it, or how how likely is it that a, that a kid may be picked up by a group like this under those conditions? It doesn't always happen under those circumstances, mm -hmm. but. If it happens like that, uh, it, it's really crucial and essential that there's a father figure or a role model. Yeah. And you can see that. And that it's not even racist groups. It could be gangs of any kind or other extremist groups. It could be ISIS. It could be the Bloods. could be the Crips. could be skinheads, the KKK. If you don't have that role model, that father role, mm -hmm. yeah. you, you try to get that role model from somewhere. You try to get that attention from somewhere. You try to get the ideas from somewhere and somebody will come and pick you up and somebody will give you that yeah as we're developing as kids you know if we're not getting certain um if we're not getting something from our parents we're going to get it from somewhere in other words That's we correct. have we have to our brains have to develop we, we have to we have to develop into the society um we're going to get it from somewhere it makes it interesting that you and, and, and it fits that you feel compelled to help here in Memphis because, you know, in South Memphis and North Memphis and Fraser and some of these communities, we see a lot of that, obviously, kids who don't have father figures or or um, or have very bad examples of. Oh, yeah. To, to me, that's not different. Yeah, the, right. re the reasons why why kids get into extremist groups of any kind or gangs, they're very often the same. The reasons why they don't get out are very often the same. Mm -hmm. And at the end, the reason why they get out are very often the same as well. Right. And therefore, the program I run, which is an exit program to help individuals leave extremist groups, hate groups, gangs, whatever, mm -hmm. is open to anybody. So it's not only white supremacist groups. It's also gangs. It's also ISIS. I really don't care where you're coming from. Yeah. We're all human beings. We all deserve the chance. And uh, I said the story's often the same. And Yeah. So so this would have been you between ages, you know, eight and into your teens. This would have been into the 80s, mid to late 80s in Germany. Um, 
lot of changes going on in Germany in the toward the late eighties. Um, the fall of the Ber- Berlin Wall would come not too short, or not not too you know, or or <laughs> or shortly thereafter. Oh, and it had to do with my radicalization, of course. The the changes in, term, in yes, Germany? Yes, abs- absolutely. Because okay. first it was just provoking. Where after the Berlin Wall fell, you had all these new neo-Nazis from East Germany swapping over. Yeah. And they brought a whole different message. Because before that, I was more into a subcultural thing. Mm-hmm. that, And I had a political opinion. But the political opinion was a personal thing. The subculture was more the important part. Um, you know, uh, I, I started being a skinhead. And if you know the history of skinheads, skinheads are actually not racist. When they started in England, mm-hmm. they started with music from Jamaica. They were hanging out with black kids. They're black skinheads. They're Jewish skinheads. Uh-huh. And original skinheads are not racist. Uh-huh. That just radicalized in, in England. And then especially in Germany, it got worse after the, the Berlin Wall fell. And uh, after that, uh, the political opinion became the major part, and the subculture became the secondary part. So there was a shift. Wow, you're, and you're talking to someone who's not very well versed in all this. <laughs> um, tell me, um, tell me where and when it changed for you. When did you start to see, aha, there's something wrong with this life? Very often, mm-hmm. I think. No matter how long you're in groups like that, how old you are, how high you're up in the hierarchy, you have always doubts. But the problem is you live in a bubble and, you know, you don't talk to people outside of your bubble. It's like being a family. If you have problems inside a family, mm-hmm. you don't talk to the neighbors, right? Yeah, right. So you talk to your family and that's the same thing. You talk to your own people, but they don't want you to leave. They reassure you that everything is all right. They will diffuse your doubts mm-hmm. and you stay. Because the problem is if you talk to somebody outside of the bubble, there's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of judgment. Who wants to talk to a Nazi? Who wants to talk to a racist? Or who wants to talk to a Bloods member or a, a Crips member? They are uh, – you just talk to, to the people in your own group. Uh, and those doubts go away. But they add up. At the end, you will have a big stack full of doubts. Um, sometimes you leave those groups, but you still have the beliefs in your head. But to leave those groups, you need a lot of courage. It's a little bit like in, a, in an abusive relationship. You may have to move to another town, find a new job, find new friends, maybe change your name. And, and if you are in a group, extremist group that has an ideological background, then you have to throw over everything you believe in too. So I didn't have that courage for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But is it the, the doubts that added up or the things that didn't add up, that stack. Yeah. Yeah. That, that got higher and higher. At some point, I just decided I have to get out of the group itself because there was pressure from the government. And I knew if I stay, um, those groups got more violent, and I didn't want that. I knew I will either end up in prison or dead, and that's not what I wanted. So I got out of those groups. In my head, I was still a racist. But I did the move and moved to another town, mm-hmm. and uh, I was desperate and just took the first best apartment I could get and that was owned by a Turkish Muslim. Ah. I would never moved into that a couple of months prior to that, but I was just desperate. And he just showed me compassion during, a, a, I would say, a time period of six months uh, that I thought I didn't deserve it at the time. Yeah. 
And I expected him to turn out to be that Muslim terrorist or something that kicks me out of his house or I don't, you know? Yeah. All these stereotypical expectations I had. Yeah. And I was taught to be wrong. Yeah. You're listening to uh, WYPL 89.3 FM, Storyboard 30. We're talking to Tim, I'm sorry, to T.M. Garrett. I keep wanting to say Tim. Uh, T.M. Garrett. Let's explore that. So a Turkish Muslim, and you would have been, how old were you when you moved in? Uh, with, with You moved into his house or his apartment? It was a, a house um, with three stories. He lived on the first level. Gotcha. We had okay. the second and the third. I lived downstairs. And first it started, uh, he must have overheard that I do computer work. So he asked me if I can help him fix his computer. He kept having problems and he would pay me. Uh -huh. So months prior to that, I would never have done that. But yeah. I was desperate. We had nothing. So I accepted that offer and repaired the computer, took the money, went back upstairs. And it kept going on like that for a while until it started one time. It took a little bit longer and he um, presented me with some... Uh, Turkish tea and Turkish pancakes because it took so long. At first, I didn't want to touch it. You know, the Muslim touched it, and, and it was weird, different culture, and I don't dirty hands. No, all those things, I thought. Right. Um, but I did something very selfish. I ate it, not because I wanted to be nice, but I, I heard or I thought in that culture, if you uh, reject the food, that they may get very, very offensive yeah. or offended. Right. And I didn't know how he would react, so I just tried to avoid that situation. Just uh -huh. very selfish and ate it, and it's, it was really good. I still like it to this day. <laughs> and a couple of months later, I just helped him more and more and, and refused to take his money at some point because it was just nice. He invited me for dinner. And I was sitting there. It was not even a typical Turkish dish. It was um, it was baked chicken and fries, but fish soup. That must be some Turkish thing, and I, I just don't. I can't eat fish soup, period. Uh -huh. But that was my pancake situation. You know what I mean? I was sitting there with the fish soup, and I was like, okay, oh, boy, I'm in trouble. Because this time I can't just eat it, selfish or not. I have to tell him. But I didn't know what, what would happen if I tell him. Will he kick me out of his house? Will he eat me up, blow me up, whatever? Will he turn into the Turkish Muslim terrorist, take off his mask, show his real face? And I had to tell him, Himmet, that was his name. I don't like fish soup. Mm -hmm. And you know what happened? Nothing. Uh -huh. <laughs> His uh -huh. wife came, took the fish soup, brought the chicken, and I was like, what the hell did just happen here? <laughs> and I realized he was not the one with the mask on. I was the one with the mask on, literally. Right. Um, having all these stereotypical expectations, that just did not happen. He showed me that compassion. He just showed me that I was wrong. I felt so small, ashamed, and wrong, not only sitting there, at the dinner table, but also all the months prior to that, helping him, mm -hmm. and even the years prior to that. Uh, you know, the the experience that I made with, with immigrants over there, especially Turkish immigrants, Germany has a lot of Turkish immigrants. Yeah. It was like more gang-like. Uh, um, it was like uh, teenage uh, Turkish gangs, and it was us, and we were fighting a lot. Once I even got shot. And mm. th this is just expectations I had. And then there comes this family man and just shows me that compassion and he didn't care what I believe in. He didn't care what I am. He just saw that human being. Yeah. And ripped actually the mask off my face. Right, right. And I realized that he's a human being too. The first time I saw a former enemy as a human being, 
That's transformative. Yeah. Um, wow. What 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 age were you roughly in during these years? And there's a specific reason I asked that. Um, that was 2003, which means I was um. So post 9/11. 27. Yeah. 27. Post 9/11. 27. I asked that because you know um, it's no secret that we men tend to mature later in life, right? <laughs> That's correct. Right. And, um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes we don't get it until we're 30 or something, or sometimes not until we're 40. But, um, but that's, that's why I asked that, because that can be such a, an important time for a man uh, in learning something different than what they grew up with, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so let's fast forward a bit. So what is it then... Because you went through this, you were, you were radicalized, but then you went through this radical transformation with, you know, you know, from this man's compassion. Um, let's fast forward a little bit to 2012. What is it about Memphis? Because we, we here in Memphis and, and you know, I, I did not grow up here, but I, I hear it all the time that we don't appreciate our city sometimes as much as other cultures appreciate Memphis. What did you see from afar in Memphis? And then what drew you to, to coming here? It was actually a coincidence that I ended up here. (laughs) Um, Nothing cosmic or no, not at all. Not at all. I I ended up here, here around Memphis. Uh It was actually Olive Branch, Mississippi. I had no idea how close it was to Memphis. And, you know, I was out of those hate groups already for 10 years. Yeah. And I expected the U.S. to be that multicultural melting pot that you know from the Hollywood movies, you know, the white cop and the black cop and their uh, best friends, and they go to each other's houses. And then right. I moved to Memphis, and I was like, okay, this <laughs> Hollywood picture does not exist here <laughs> because they don't go to each other's houses. It does not – there's a crossover, but for the most part, it doesn't exist. Right. And I was just had a big question mark over my head and was like, why is that? And nobody could give me the proper answer. And it felt like there's a chosen segregation. Okay, segregation ended in the 60s on paper. On paper. Yeah. On paper. Yeah. But it's just like it's chosen. It's still there. And, and, and I tried to break that barrier somehow but couldn't. And it started in 2016. A lot of things happened in 2016. But the major part what made me uh, go in the direction where I am now is uh, all the police brutality that happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alton Sterling got killed in Louisiana. Another black man got killed in Wisconsin. Then uh, the black man killed the cops in in, uh, Dallas. Uh, Black Lives Matter movement got started, and I had two co-workers, they're both Mm African-American, and they knew about my past, and we had great um, talks about, great conversations about racial uh, or or race relations. And um, I told them, look, that's all fine and dandy, and I support all that that's going on, Black Lives Matter, Um, that's a voice that's needed, but... What happens in two weeks? Everybody will go back to normal. Right now, they're out there rallying, protesting. Great. In two weeks, they are back at home, back to normal. The police brutality still exists. The racism still exists. And I always say, whatever we do, and we think it's great if we do that one day. 
but it has to be great every day. Yeah. You have to do it every day, every week, every month, not go home and do it again next time something happens. The same like we just had a synagogue shooting in San Diego. Yeah. And that's the same thing. Everybody, our thoughts and prayers, that is nice. But, yeah, thoughts and prayers until it happens next time. Everybody goes to synagogue and supports them one time, and then everybody forgets about it. Yeah. That minorities are just targeted over and over again. Jewish, African-American, Muslim, it happens all the time. We have to be aware of that every day and support those people every day. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we, had, we talked about this during the roundtable as well. That getting these these voices together, getting these personalities together, and talking about these issues is terrific. But one, the conversations do need to happen on a more frequent basis. And then secondly, we have to, like you said, we have to act on it, and we have to not only act act on it, but advocate for for change and do some of the things that you're doing. You know, do some of the things that Lakeith and Mason's doing, that uh, Reverend Dr. Earl Fisher's doing, that. You know some of the the, the folks the 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 um, um, conference that we just had over at the Civil Rights Museum last week, um, the um, Shared Prosperity Conference that was held. A lot of great conversations out of that. What do you think are other things that we can do, either as a society or individually? What other things do you think we can do to change? I mean, it's such a huge, loaded. I, I don't. I hate to use the word "loaded" question, but it's not. Yeah, it's actually very, very, very simple. Mm-hmm. Talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Behind, be, beyond those labels. Yeah. Beyond how you look like. Beyond how how you pray. Beyond uh, where sexual prefer- preferences. Beyond your party that you're part of or how you vote. Right. Look beyond that and start talking to each other instead about each other. Yeah. And uh, especially here in Memphis, it's a lot about race relations, too. And I think I talked about that before as well. Um, when I talk to white people and say, so you got black friends, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yes, 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 I do. And I'm like, okay, so how often have they been at your house last year having dinner with you? And they were yeah. like head scratching and the answer zero. And I ask my black friends, too. So you've got white friends? And... The answer is often yes. So how often have they been to your house last year eating soul food? Mm-hmm. Same answer, zero and head scratching. Yeah. said, okay, those, you're not friends, your acquaintances, your classmates, your coworkers, your whatever, but unless you have broken bread together, yeah. eaten together, shared yeah. a meal, you're not friends. Yeah. And this is a program we're just coming up with, a share meal program that you open your house to somebody with another um, faith, another ethnic background, race, or whatever, and start doing that and really get together. Ask each other the questions. Talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. Beyond black and white, beyond Democrat, Republican, beyond Christian, Muslim. Right, right. Um, before we close out the, the, the show portion of the, of the show um, – I want to mention because there's one, there's something you're doing that um, that is going to at least bring you into people's living rooms. Hopefully, if this works out, the reality show, right? It's not a reality TV show. It will be a docu series. We're just working on it and see um, which TV network is ready to pick it up. 
Um, it's a producer from England who's working on it. He is more uh, experienced in the TV reality, uh, reality TV um, life. Um, yeah. He created the Super Nanny. He, um, the Real Housewives of New York City. Right. He produced that. But he wants to get a little bit more into docu-series and just work uh, with me and show my work with former extremists and, and bringing people together and hopefully. Yeah, see, that that's the thing, too, I think, you know, because it's short of um, short of you physically going into, you know, uh, meeting people, you can only go so far, you individually. But doing something that's, you know, that touches mass media uh, can be can be very effective. Um, and then your continued work and everything else. But um, so I really hope that that comes to fruition. I think that would be really something for, for people to see and to see that work. Um, so your activism and your, your, what you're doing now, you're, you're speaking probably all the time, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. Um, tell me what else, what else you're doing. You're, you're also... So you, you're working with the Simon Wiesenthal, Wiesenthal Center, you mentioned. That's correct. And um, as I said, I've got my nonprofit organization, Change. Yeah. Um, one big project we have every year is the Back to School well, um, event, mm -hmm. where we uh, hand out school supplies for free in parts of Memphis like Orange Mound, Fraser. L last two years we did in Orange Mound, where it's mostly needed. Um, no questions asked, just helping because those kids need it. We mm -hmm. do it the weekend before school starts. Mm -hmm. So those kids, they come there, they need it. They really need it. That's one of them. As I said, we've got my exit program where I help, uh, help individuals leave extremist groups. And also a tattoo cover-up program where people that have tattoos from hate groups, from gangs, can come and we cover them up for free. We've got a tattoo studio in Horn Lake that is six-eye tattoos we're working with. And... They covered up for free. Yeah. We have like seven other tattoo studios across the country in L.A., in Florida, in uh, in Missouri, even in Alaska mm -hmm. that offer the same. Yeah, yeah. So how often do you come up from Horn Lake here to Memphis? You're, you're, here, you're probably here very often, right? Um, sometimes twice a day. It depends how often it's needed. Yeah. Uh, I work in, a lot in Memphis. Um so if I'm in town at all, then every other day, so that's sometimes twice a day. Yeah. Um, it's, so, it's my home. I consider myself a Memphian. Yes. Yeah. I know you mentioned that last week, and then uh, it turned some heads because <laughs> you said Memphian, and people said, oh, he doesn't quite have a, a Memphis accent. <laughs> that's correct. But that's what I chose where I want to be. Um, Memphis, it's a great city. It deserves attention. It's got a great historical significance. Yeah. And it has great potential. It's oh, yeah. It's underrated. Oh, yeah. It really is. It's, it's, yeah, I, I'm, we're, I say we as it, I'll, I'll, I'll say that for Memphis, even though you've been here longer than I have. But, um, no, no, we, we need more people like you in Memphis to, to thank you very much. The, the, the transformative part of it is, is so, is so amazing in particular. Yeah. So, um, I want to hear about your tattoos. So tell me about your tattoos, and the and all, and also the the the, the tattoo cover up program you mentioned. Well, being in in white supremacist groups, tattoo played a big role. Mm -hmm. Skinhead, especially in skinhead culture, 
in particular. And if you become a racist skinhead, then the tattoos often have more racist background. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, I never had swastikas or something like that, but it identified me at least as a member of a particular group. And when I got out of, of, of the hate groups, um, I, I didn't want to represent it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I started covering those up. The problem is that, as I said, we have a judgmental society, and very often tattoo artists are part of that judgmental society. Yeah. And you go somewhere, and they sometimes don't want to touch it at all. Like, oh, I'm not touching gang tattoos for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Or they just look at you because they don't know why you're covering it up. And you don't know maybe they're supporters uh -huh. of what you want to cover up. Uh -huh. or it, it, it's, it's just weird. And um, I got two covered up in Germany. I got laser treatment uh, on one. And when I moved here to the U.S., I had one tattoo left from the time, which was a spider web. Over there in Germany, it doesn't mean anything. It's just something nice you can put on a joint because it moves nice, you know. Mm -hmm. There's not much you can put on a joint. Water, maybe fire or something like that, or a spider web. Yeah. When I moved here, I learned that it's often used as a prison tattoo. And I got asked if I did time, and I did not, fortunately. But it was an, uh, an uncomfortable question because I didn't want to explain myself every time. Yeah. So I started wearing long sleeve shirts. And we're here in Memphis. You know how it's, how it's in the summertime, 104 degrees, 100% humidity. Yeah. That's not very comfortable. And um, I, I knew I had to cover it up. And... I saved up a little bit of money, and my wife and I, we went to a couple tattoo shops in the area. And it was not a great experience. It was like all the experiences I had before with cover-ups. And I it just asked, can you cover that up? Because people ask me if I've been to prison. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. They're like, what do you want? I said, I don't care. Just make <laughs> it go away. There's a big difference for a cover-up like this or something that you want. Let's say you go to a tattoo shop because you like that wonderful picture that you want on your whatever where yeah uh you know you want it because you like it in that case you wanted to make it go away because you don't like it uh -huh. so you don't care what it is just put a black spot on it or whatever yeah and often tattoo artists don't get that because they want to put art somewhere yeah in that case it's less about art mm -hmm. it's about help And a lot of tattoo artists don't know how to deal with that. And also I said, okay, I have this budget. How much would it be? And they told me, well, it's $150 per hour and we don't know how long it would take. These are not the answers you want. Yeah. And then when I found Six Eye Tattoos in Horn Lake, they were like – it was Drew Darby, the manager there and tattoo artist. He just had an idea immediately. He didn't ask me what I want. He, he came up with it. He asked me how much – I have. He worked with my budget because he c could kind of feel the pain. Mm -hmm. And that was a great experience. It was like family, and, and he didn't judge nothing. So we covered it up. That was in 2013. Mm -hmm. And ever since, I was fine with that. But when I started working with other extremists or ex-gang members, I learned that they have the same problems with the tattoos that I had. Yeah. They face the same judgment, same problems. And very often you don't have the the money you need for that either. Right. And so I asked them, what do you think if we are helping those to cover those up with no judgment and for free? Yeah. And they were in immediately and ever, ever since we do that. Because it's just important because it's a stigma. It identifies you. Uh, imagine you're trying to find a job 
and you have a swastika on your neck. Yeah. Or if you have Crips tattooed on your hand. Yeah, yeah. What is the job recruiter looking at first? Oh, yeah. At your resume? Yeah. No. Yeah. He's looking at those tattoos. Yeah. And and we can we help cover them up. Yeah. And that helps a lot. Yeah. Um what um what kind of reactions do you get from folks in town who don't know your story? Um and immediately I would imagine they hear the accent. You know. Um what do you encounter Memphis is really so friendly, I find, you know. Um but do you encounter any any adverse reactions, any difficult reactions to the work you're doing? Uh, I was surprised how open it was, uh-huh. how many open arms and open hearts I actually found Yeah, that, that accepted me as a person and were rather saying it's great what I do and how I change, not interested in the story of change yeah. than finger-pointing and, and, and judging me for my past. Yeah. They are rather interested, okay, how did it happen that you got involved in those groups, caught up in that? Yeah. And what made you change? And this is the good part because people are interested in the story of the change that makes them open mm-hmm. to talk to other people, similar people, and, and, and understand there's a, there's a life behind, beyond the label. Yeah. And, and we have to look at that and as human beings and we can save those souls. You know, I find people are more empathetic if they're listening to your story versus you trying to tell them um, how to change. You know, you know if, they're, if they're more engrossed in your story, that's, they're more likely, it seems, to embrace some kind of a change or look at things just a little, little bit different, wouldn't you say? Uh, I, th- I think that's correct because it makes them understand. Yeah. It's a, it's a real-life experience. It's not right. just somebody's wisdom because... Because you think it's right. It's, it's like a marriage counselor. Yeah. You know, a marriage counselor gives a great advice and he's divorced like three times, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that happens all the time. Right, right. Um, but this is a real-life experience, and it really happened that way. And uh, that I think, I think that's more authentic for people. Because as I said, if you go to a marriage counselor, you're like, okay, you give me that great advice and you're divorced like three times. How do you know how it works, right? right? right. In that case, it's, it's, it's not authentic. And, and in my case, people think it's more authentic. Not saying that marriage counselors don't have great advice. I mean, I give great advice all day long, and, and I, I struggle myself doing things, yeah. you know. But um, it's, it's about authenticity, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about one more topic. Okay. Um, rhetoric. How... How damaging do you think the rhetoric, and I'm going to, I will say not just the White House, but also Congress, and and also Facebook, um, how, how damaging, how difficult do you think the rhetoric, and what kind of damage is all the rhetoric doing? A lot. Yeah. Because that rhetoric is, um, is that putting labels on people's foreheads. Yeah. And that leads... To the process that we dehumanize people. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about bipartisan relationships. You know, mm-hmm. the left is calling the right Trumpists, the right is calling the left Liptarts and whatever, and those are labels. Yeah. You don't you don't know them by name anymore. You just call them by those labels, and and if you don't see the human beings behind it anymore, 
yeah. and you call each other out that makes it easier to hate each other. Mm-hmm. And where dehumanization leads to, we've seen that in Germany 19, in the 1930s. Right. It, it helped that the whole population stood behind a genocide because they didn't see the human being anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is alarming. We need everybody here. And I'm not calling out one side. We all are part of that. And even I catch myself sometimes on Facebook. I'm super active on Facebook. If you want to follow me there, Team Garrett, that's, send me a friend request or follow me on my page. And I try to stay as neutral as I can. And we all fail when every day we just, all we can do is try to do better the next day. And I, I it's it's hard. And we it's just, we have to yeah. stop labeling. And this yeah. rhetoric, it's dangerous. It's yeah. really dangerous. And it's dangerous for a country. It's dangerous as a society. And we all are part of that sometimes. And I guarantee every all of us have caught ourselves. Oh, yeah. Of oh, ju- judging and labeling other people, I know I do, and I, I, um, I will refrain. I mean, it, it, it's it, it almost it almost feels like a baser temptation to um, rant on Facebook or next door. Absolutely, or because you're anonymous. You know, yeah. there's not there's not a real yeah. human being. And there's a lot of people, they post something on Facebook and you get a certain reaction. If you And then you meet them in person, you don't get the same reactions. Yeah. Um, it's like what comes out on the keyboard on their fingertips is yes. sometimes maybe not who they are or maybe it is who they are. I, we, you know, sometimes you don't know. I, I, I think, okay, it's scientifically proven that the human attention span is the, that of a goldfish. Mm-hmm. About seven to ten seconds. This is why Twitter has 160 characters. This is why Facebook has a certain amount of characters until it says read more. And very often, you probably caught yourself too. You read on Facebook and you just read the first five sentence or lines, and you don't read read more. Yeah. That's why I try to put the basic message in these first couple lines because I know people don't read beyond that. So I just go deeper into that, and people just read that. These are. This is why memes are so dangerous too, because yeah. you don't even check on them if they're real. Yeah, like a photo and a quote, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Those, that person never said it. Yeah, um, and I think um, we just don't double check, and we just type something on Facebook and send it. Yeah, and I sometimes I edit it, or sometimes before I send it, I read it again, and I was like. No, I'm not sending it at all. Uh-huh. I'm posting it. Yeah. And I delete it and say, okay. Yeah. Not stirring the pot today. <laughs> yeah. Um that's a good good place to, to wrap it up wrap it up because I think what you said early on about getting out there and talking and meeting people and talking face to face versus very important. Yeah, very important versus expressing your baser emotions on, on social media. Yeah much better to get out there well once again tam garrett thank you so much for coming and um thank you for the extra time uh and listeners thank you for tuning in to storyboard 30 the podcast thank you once again to van sturban and to wypl fm 89.3 and to the memphis public libraries and again memphis make it a great week